So, welcome to all of you again. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks to those also joining us online. <clears throat> and we are today giving one more sharing, so to say, in, in Nelson before in a few days continuing. of New Zealand, up, up, but yeah, around. I don't know if to say east or where is the other side, but I'm going toward the east. Today I like to continue with another another topic, but somehow also connected to to the book on radical personalism that somehow I'm I've been presented during the last year. <clears throat> but before going to that topic, I'll go to another topic connected also in this book, which is the topic of vulnerability. There's a whole chapter of the book on vulnerability and empowerment and how actual empowerment comes from being vulnerable, as counterintuitive as that may sound. When we are willing to acknowledge our vulnerability, that's when we, the most empowerment can come to us. We don't even need to be, how to say, we don't need to try to be vulnerable, but just we need to acknowledge that we are vulnerable. <laughs> and when we acknowledge our vulnerability, in a proper safe space and environment, we can be received, we can be accepted and honored fully, and that can actualize our potential like nothing. By the contrary, when we avoid our vulnerability, we develop a false sense of strength, That's not actual strength, that's not actual courage, that not, that's not actual uh, empowerment. So in connection to vulnerability, there's one section in the book that we talked about the, the Sanskrit term darshan. Maybe you have heard this word darshan, which many times it's used to indicate uh, looking up to God, see God. Hmm? Well, actually, the implication of the term has more to do with being seen by God. It's not so much about, I will see God, like when I decide so, no? by my own sweet will, Krishna has to appear. No? But we are being seen by him, first and foremost. So the more we get, how to say, become aware of not only that we are being seen by him, but how we are being seen by him, the more we may get closer to see him uh, properly. In other words, first we have to understand from which eyes God is looking at us. <laughs> and once we have that figured out properly, 
we can approach him with the right attitude. Because if we have a wrong conception of how God is looking upon us, we may have a wrong conception in our relationship with, with him, in our approach to him. If we think that God is a, I don't know, I'm saying English, vengeful? Vengeful. Vengeful, like father figure that is just up of this sky in one cloud with one thunderbolt in one hand and another thunderbolt in the second hand. And he's just angry, very easily angry, quite grumpy, daddy, and that sky daddy. Uh, uh, and, and he may become very easily displeased. So we will approach our connection to him from a place of intimidation and fear. And uh, I want to be, I want to do things right so daddy doesn't get angry, <laughs> which has nothing to do with I want to love God. It's just like I'm terrified of, of you. And I just want to be a good boy, a good girl. So, no, well, so <laughs> hell doesn't break loose, as they say. No, and that, and all that, and, and many people think like that. And many people, that's their conception of God, that's their conception of religion. But it all begins with a wrong, distorted idea of how God is looking upon us. So darshan has to do with seeing God, but first of all, before that. <laughs> with understanding how we are being seen with God, by God, sorry. Is God seeing, looking at us with anger, with a vengeful spirit, with looking for the first immediate excuse to throw the thunderbolt on our heads or, or things like that? Or, or he's a different person. Hmm? And once we have that in, in, in place, okay, real darshan can happen. When I have clear how God is looking at me, then I can look back at him with a realistic uh, perspective, not with a projected unresolved trauma from childhood or who knows what. No? So, and the idea with Darshan, of course, is that we are being looked upon by God with unconditional love, with unconditional acceptance, uh, value, and affection. That's, that's the Darshan. That's how we are being seen by him. So from that perspective, if we understand, okay, God is looking up at me with unconditional, infinite affection, that naturally sets the tone for my reciprocation to that, my approach to that. Despite my present condition, despite me being a probable mess, <laughs> and God in one sense, you could say he, has, he, he could have pretty good reasons to be angry at me if you want to put it like that. But despite that, he loves me unconditionally. So that sets a completely different tone for how the relation will operate. <clears throat> so how we are being seen by God, in one sense, defines our whole uh, existence. According to how we are being seen by him, uh, or by her, we will say, Radha Krishna, or by them, <laughs> use the gender pronouns you want. <laughs> That's also proper from the times we are living. So according to how we are being seen by him, her, them, of that, that will help us 
doesn't be an independent perspective. It's not like, okay, Krishna is looking up on me like this, but I look up on me a completely different way. No, the purpose is to align my vision of myself according to the vision that God is having up on myself. Because he's seeing reality with the proper eyes. We don't have generally the right vision to appreciate things, even ourselves. <laughs> so we have to take for granted, okay, how God is looking up on us, that's how I should be looking up on me as well. So in that connection, again, this is very important to define who we are. Many times when we ask this basic but crucial question, who we are, many times our reply or maybe our sense of internally, our sense of I, which is our sense of I am many times what I do, you know, my vocation, my work, I'm this, whatever, that's who I am. I am a policeman. I am whatever. You fill the, the gaps with whatever. Or I am what I have, as we talked the other day. People conceive that the more I have things, the more I am. I expand my sense of self by the things I own. It's a way of enlarging your sense of self, which, of course, is not working, but we try hard. <laughs> no. So one way of replying, who are, who are you, is like, I am what I do. Another reply, who are you, is I am what I have. No, but still we are missing the mark terribly. Mm -hmm. Or another reply of who are you, which is probably even worse, is I am what other thinks of me. No, I, I, I am public opinion. No, Whatever the audience thinks of me, whatever the today's thread in Instagram thinks of me, that my today's version of me many times we allow ourselves to be fully defined by by the environment by any environment or sometimes even we may not we may think okay i'm not i am not what i do i am not what i have i am not what others think of me i am what i think of me but the problem is many times we don't think of us in the most accurate way <laughs> many times we don't think of us in the most compassionate way sometimes as we were talking the other day we will tell things to ourselves internally that we will never ever tell to anyone else but to ourselves yes <laughs> we were we we saved the worst type of crap for us <laughs> to put it in simple words so many times we and and all of those things are not us that's my point we are not what we have, we are not what we do, we are not what other thinks of us, and generally we are not what we, we even us, ourselves think of us. So who we are? We are, how to say, I am who I am in the eyes of God. That's who I am. My, my most precise, accurate sense of existence is who I am in his eyes. How I'm being looked upon God that's my more my most clear specific precise sense of identity and existence and who i am in the eyes of god again he's looking up on me with eyes of unconditional love according to the scriptures we will share some quotes in a few minutes for those who doubt so so that's a very important point no? i am who i am in the eyes of he who has the most accurate eye so to say God is looking up at me with the eyes of unconditional love, then I am the beloved of God. That's who I am. That's a good place to begin. <laughs>
we could say man, we can reply to the question who I am in many ways, in many accurate ways. But one of one of those ways, and maybe the best one to begin the answer to the question is who are you? I am the beloved of the Lord. I am the beloved of God. He loves me unconditionally. Of course, not only me, all of us. So that's a very safe place to begin our sense of existence. God finds something in me which is lovable. So there is something lovable in me. Not to become proud of that. It's just what it is and in everyone. And God is loving that. I'd like to share a few words from my book in this connection. Can I ask you that, that one of those two <coughs> copies, please, Petra? You choose. Yeah, but it's that book, yeah. Not you choose between the two books, <laughs> but between the two copies, yeah. Thank you. So just a few words that I have in mind in this connection that I really like in connection to this idea of we are being loved by God, so there is something in us lovable by him. So I quote from St. John of the Cross here, Christian mystic. So the admired Christian mystic, John of the Cross, often, often said, love what God sees in you. I'll repeat the line. Love what God sees in you. God is seeing something in you that is lovable. Learn to love that as well. Love what God loves. <laughs> Due to his unconditional love, and despite our own messiness, the sweet absolute always manages to successfully find something lovable, even in the worst of hearts. Thus, instead of judging ourselves according to how we, society, or any other person chooses to see us conditionally, we are invited to rediscover ourselves through the unconditional gaze of the divine, through which he loves us unrestrictedly in our nothingness, not in our somethingness. Loving what God sees in us also implies loving the costless grace through which God sees in us something worthy of being loved. It implies loving the unconditional love through which he contemplates everything. And since loving someone implies loving the things loved by our beloved, if God loves something in us, we should learn to love that as well. We do not do this because of self-centeredness, but because we want to fully identify and love the things our beloved Lord is passionate about. And Krishna loves you, you should learn to love you because you are loved by Krishna. Not to love you in a, how to say, self-centered, narcissistic way. You know, like, I love me, and I love me, and I'm so beautiful and incredible, and I'm... No, not in that sense. From a place of deep humility, of being first loved by God. Hmm? So that's a, the real self-love we can talk about. Sometimes there are people who will say, you cannot love someone until you love yourself. You cannot love someone until you love yourself. But I will say, no, you cannot love someone until, until you know your, that you are already loved. Hmm? 
and you love yourself in that context. Yes, sorry if it sounds like I'm making a play of words. <laughs> Sometimes people will say, you cannot love someone until you love yourself first. But I will say, you cannot love someone until you know yourself are already loved by someone, by Bhagavan, by God. And you can love yourself, you can love in yourself that thing that God is loving you, in you. you follow, Krishna loves something in you, there's something lovable in you. You love what he loves, so you love that. <laughs> so you love you, so to say. And in that sense, in that way of loving you, you can love others, basically. Because, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the, the, the main way you can really love someone else. If, if not, I don't think it's possible to love yourself until you experience that you are lovable. And, and, and for you, for you to be lovable, that requires that someone is loving you already. When you understand someone is loving me, Krishna, not anyone and someone, but their one, <laughs> he's already loving me, that means I'm lovable. You, generally, you cannot say I'm lovable if, if nobody has ever loved you. That's difficult to reach that conclusion. So it's possible to love yourself in a healthy way, non-narcissistic way. But understanding we are truly infinitely loved by God. So today I like to go deep into this direction. Like for me, it's kind of a, a game-changing orientation to practice and a spiritual life, which is we are the beloved of God. Each of us are already infinitely valued and accepted by him. For me, in my personal opinion, it's my personal opinion, but I consider this one of the main um, preliminary considerations to engage in practice, in approaching practice, spiritual practice in a healthy way, in a sustainable way, that Krishna already loves you. Krishna already loves you, so the next question is how to reciprocate to that. Instead of, Krishna doesn't love me, and I have to earn his love. That's a very different place to, from which to practice. Try to, try to meditate for a minute. If you practice thinking, God doesn't love me, and somehow I'm practicing to convince him that I'm not so bad, no. <laughs> that, that I can be lovable in potential. <laughs> that's that's a struggle and now changed to he already has loved and accepted you from time without beginning even before you started your practice and, and now you start your practice to give back something in return to all that was given to you even without your knowledge mm -hmm. so so basically that's the logic behind it. i mean love by definition if we talk about love god is unconditional you cannot talk about conditional love, although most people speak about love but express it in conditional terms. That's a long list, long contract of conditions. I'll love you if and when, only if you feel this and you won't see the small letters and all that stuff. No. <laughs> but actual real love is unconditional. It means it doesn't depend on conditions. If you do this, if you don't do that, if you are perfect, if you are this or that, I love you. I already love you before before you feel or not fulfill any of the conditions. That's a real love, unconditional, not conditional. Conditional pertains to conditioned life, conditioned souls. 
and love has to be unlimited also. Real love cannot be limited. Real love cannot be conditional. Real love cannot be limited. Real love has to be unconditional, unlimited, and unlimited, sorry. <laughs> and that's how God loves, basically, us. Unconditionally and infinitely, unlimitedly. Not only because he has love, but according to our tradition, he is made of love. So that's an interesting idea. A person who is made of love. <laughs> it's difficult to think about it. But that's what the scriptures mention. Krishna's inner being is made of love. Krishna's inner being is Swarup Shakti. No. Bhakti. Love. That's his inner being. It takes particular shape externally for the purpose of Lila, Sri Radha. But Radha and Krishna, in one sense, are non-different. We have to keep that in mind as well. So since God is made of love, unconditional love, unlimited love, if you are made of something, you cannot go against what you are made of. So if you are made of love, you cannot not love. It goes against your constitution. So if someone who is made of love cannot not love, so that's why we say Krishna is having unconditional love, not only for us, for me, not only for each of us, not only for everyone, but even for everything. Try to imagine someone who is totally made of unconditional infinite love cannot go against that. Therefore, whatever comes from that person is unrestrictedly expanding in all these directions not only for us but for everything mm -hmm. so that's for me that's very empowering mm -hmm. that for the fact to know that you are already loved by god because if you, you don't think that you are lovable who can dare to love mm -hmm. who will dare to love if you think that you are not lovable mm -hmm. that will completely freeze us paralyze us most people are so often they are in entering into that area they are running after from that they are running after that and they are running after that and from that you know, love is the thing we need the most love is the thing that terrifies us the most many times and one of the reasons may be because we think we are not worthy of love we are unlovable <laughs> so we do not dare to love fully so, so when we know you're already fully loved and, lo loved and lovable, oh, that's so empowering in our attempt to love. Mm -hmm. Being loved leads to feeling lovable, basically. Mm -hmm. Being loved, knowing that you are loved leads you to feel, okay, I'm lovable. Mm -hmm. And feeling yourself lovable is what allows you, what gives you permission to reciprocate in love with others because if we think that we are crap again and many people do unfortunately why will we want to give ourselves to others <laughs> most people many people think i'm worthless i'm useless uh, so naturally that person is not feeling i'll give myself in love to others because to begin with they feel I'm nothing. 
So first we need to heal that part. And once you understand, no, no, it's not that you are useless and hopeless and purposeless. You're already loved by God. And from that foundation, so many layers of trauma, if you even can be healed. So that's how how Krishna loves us. Now, if 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 you think differently, then that's not the God we worship. If if we think, now Krishna loves conditionally, not unconditionally. Krishna will love some, but some others he won't love. So that means, like for example, okay, Krishna only will love you if you become his devotee. If not, he doesn't love you. That's not unconditional love. That's conditional love. I only love you if you are my devotee. Like if I tell you, if you surrender to me, I love you. If not, I don't care for you. That's not very loving, <laughs> right? What to speak of people who think, no, God not, does not even love if you become his devotee. He's completely indifferent. There are all these degrees of opinion. God does not exist. God exists, but he's totally indifferent. Or God is not totally indifferent, but partially indifferent, unless and until you become his devotee. But all those proposals, again, are problematic, are, are projecting a God that is not unconditional in his loving. And the point is that in our tradition, in Shastra, in the sacred scriptures, we have many examples that declare that Krishna loves everyone and everything, and not only his devotees, not only those who already love him, because the devotees are those who love him. It's not that Krishna loves those who love him only. First you love me, and then I love you. If you don't love me, I don't love you. You start. No. That, that's, that's not Krishna. No. That's not our Krishna. At least. That's not my Krishna. At least. <laughs> it's not someone who say, I don't love you. I don't care for you. So first you care for me, love me, and then I'll reciprocate. Probably we won't be very inspired to love such a person. <laughs> But if you know someone is already loving you unconditionally, accepting you fully forever from eternity, oh, you became like moved, moved to try to know more about that person and do something about it. So, so Krishna loves everyone. And he also loves his devotees. In the, in the scriptures say he especially loves his devotees. But why? Because his devotees especially love him. So he reciprocates accordingly. That's basically the special love of Krishna for his devotees. Why? Because the devotees are approaching him in a particular way and he reciprocates with that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't love those who do not approach him. He loves everyone unconditionally and those who choose to recognize that and approach him, he reciprocates in kind. Mm -hmm. The example that, that I sometimes give in my book is that of a mother. A mother can have, <coughs> you have some mothers, so you will be able to empathize. And fathers also, why not? So <clears throat> the mother has a child and the child is, I don't know, one month old. So the baby doesn't have too much awareness of his mother's existence in one sense. The child is not even aware of his own existence at the time. It's more like an intuitive, instinctual survival mode in one sense. So, But the mother already loves the child unconditionally. The child may be a mess. No? 
urinating it himself and all this type of stuff <laughs> not not reciprocating in kind too much the mother has to spend sleepless nights and running here and the baby's just like crying and demanding more at one point and tantrums over here <laughs> not a thank you and anything <laughs> not reciprocation yet but the mother loves unconditionally no there's an effect although the other person at the beginning doesn't even know that the mother exists no? try to follow the analogy mother will be god in this case and the un unaware baby is us without being aware that god exists and we are being loved by him but when the child grows and attains awareness oh there is someone called mom <laughs> and she loves me oh and i realize all that she did for me during all these years wow i'm in such a depth now <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy. I mean, it's not a problem. I'm happy to now awaken to the reality of reciprocation. So now I like to give back to her. I like to give some love back to her because she gave me so much. So then the child starts to relate to the mother from that new place. And the mother who already has unconditional, had an unconditional love for the baby. Now that same unconditional love takes a new shape because the child is coming to her from a new place. You follow my point? The mother continues to love the child unconditionally, but according to the reciprocation of the child. Before there, that, there was no reciprocation. So unconditional love was there expressed in a certain way. When there was reciprocation, the same unconditional love takes a new shape. So the same happens with God. God is there loving everyone unconditionally, even those who say you don't exist. <laughs> when some people become aware start to reciprocate then that original unconditional love takes a new shape like when we see how krishna reciprocates with his devotees which are those children so to say of god who become aware of god's love and choose to reciprocate in kind but my point is unconditional love was is there to begin with toward everyone let me share a few quotes from my book from shastra that i share in my book just a few for for those who still doubt that Krishna loves everyone unconditionally. Yes. Did you have an example for what was it your wedding was that when you're aware then the, the love starts to change? Because it's unconditional and then mm -hmm. when God is receiving yeah. that love back, then the love is ultimately mm -hmm. I basically, if I understand the question, mm -hmm. I say that the mother has love for the child from day one, so to say. Mm -hmm. But the love expresses itself in a certain way when the child is not reciprocating. Mm. When the child is not even aware that there is a mother. Mm. It's just one-way street, so to say. Mm. <laughs> but when the child grows and starts to love the mother, the love that the mother already has now will express itself differently mm. to, reci to reciprocate to the child's love. The relationship reaches another level. I mean, your relationship with your mom when you were, I don't know, one month is not this re same relationship you had with you were 10 or 15 or 20. Exactly, exactly. There is a back and forth now. There is a two-way street instead of a one-way street. So your mom already had love for you, but now she's receiving your love as well. So now her love, will, so it becomes more enriched, actually. No? The love becomes more thickened, so to say, more nuanced. But 
the point is still there was unconditional love to begin with. That was my main point. And again, for those who do not believe me that this is the case, so let's hammer on with some quotes from the scripture. Yeah. <laughs> a few, a few. Here there are, there are a lot, but I will share just a few. Of course, famous verse of the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 5, last verse, Krishna says, Suridam Sarbabhutanam. For example, he's saying, I'm the well-wishing friend of all living beings. Bhagavatam 10, 41, 47. He, Sudama is praying to, to Krishna saying, you are the well-wishing friend and supreme soul of the whole universe. And you regard all with unbiased vision. Also, another verse. Uh, I don't have the exact number here, but I will give it to you because... Some people may doubt, and we'll check the exact specific quotation. <laughs> so, contemplative prayer. This is a nice quote. Contemplative prayer, quote mm, 10, sorry. Wow, it's not appearing here. Okay, Bhagavatam 6, 17, 33. Shiva is saying, because God is the affectionate friends of all living entities, He's very near and dear to all of them. Again, he's not saying here to some of them, only to his devotees, and so on and so forth. Hmm. One interesting quote from, from Srila Jiva Goswami, in his commentary to Bhagavatam 1041-47, he says, <clears throat> the Lord does not have prejudiced vision thinking, this person deserves mercy and that person does not since he has unconditional mercy. Moreover, he has affection for the universe. Though he shows mercy to those who worship him, he's equal to all beings, high or low, since he's the Lord of the universe and affectionate to the fallen. I don't know, there are many verses, a few from the seventh chapter in the prayers of Prahlad Maharaj. You can ask me the, 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 quote, the exact numbers, I won't torture you with numbers now. But he's saying, calling Krishna Suparnam, he who always stays with the individual soul as a friend, he who views nothing as separate from himself, the frame of the whole universe, the supreme friend and dearmost soul of everyone. Sarva Bhutatma Bhavena, he who has love for all beings as his very self. Uh, anyhow, so many more. The Bhagavatam 10, 29, 32. The gopis are calling Krishna the dear most friend, most intimate relative and very self of each embodied soul. And so on and so forth. A few verses. But just for us to have an idea that this is not my own creation, <laughs> but this is here in the scriptures. I'm saying this because many times in our tradition, this is not so emphasized, I will say. Generally, we do not hear that often we are loved unconditionally by Krishna. That's not generally a main part of our narrative for whatever reason. And I personally think we need to, to redeem that somehow. Um, so, so yeah, that's a very important point that I want to share today. I have a few more thoughts if we have a little, yeah, we have a few minutes. Yeah, we have eternity, right? Eternity is on our side. So, of course, sometimes we hear that God love is reciprocal, but in this case, we can also see how from God's side, there is a, 
aspect of God that is not reciprocal, an aspect of love. Like he loves us when we are not loving him. Now, in that sense, we could say God's love is not reciprocal in the sense that he loves us despite we do not love him to begin with. But the ideal of love is reciprocal, so to say. You know, he's loving us, waiting for us to do our part in the equation. Mm -hmm. So this is the God we love, a loving God, the, the God we worship, a loving God, a merciful God, not an angry God, not an indifferent God, not a resentful God, not a chastising God. So we have also to be careful about the, our ideas of who God is, who Krishna is. As I put in my book, you know, God is not our idea of God. <laughs> our idea of God is not God. We have our ideas of God. If I ask you, who is God? You, you will share ideas you have. And probably the ideas are accurate, but God is not only that. <laughs> so we should be very careful not to limit God to the ideas we have about him. So again, we choose to, how to say, we get to choose which which God we want to worship. You know, we want to worship a God who judges us uh, who somehow is embarrassed by us. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, this messy, messy viewers that I have over there in New Zealand. Oh my God, that's better I don't look in that direction. No, So we choose to conceive Krishna like that. He's judging us, he's ready, anxious to judge us, and he's embarrassed by us. Or he's someone who is noticing us with unconditional love and affection and always keeping that door open open hmm? because again if we don't understand that we are loved and sorry if i'm repeating this too much but if you do not understand if we do not understand that we are really being loved by god it's so much more easy to feel worthless useless hopeless uh, lonely inadequate ontologically deprived <laughs> full of self-hatred and anxiety and dread and fear and we know so much people feels that and probably we are not free from that on some level <laughs> and in big part this type of feelings i'm never enough i'm not enough <laughs> stem from this idea of forgetting god is loving us stem from this idea that i'm not lovable and therefore i'm not ready to love that freezes us in our capacity to love. Hmm? Uh, for me, this idea of unconditional love is very empowering also because <clears throat> if we are already unconditional love, means we are already unconditionally accepted, hmm? fully accepted by Bhagavan for who we are. Hmm? So there is no longer a need to fit in, as I will speak in my book, but to belong. But if we are already accepted and loved by God, it means we already belong in one sense. The point is that we the only thing that is missing is we need to become aware that we belong. <laughs> we are already connected with God. Everything is connected with God in a general way, at least. Mm -hmm. Nothing can be existing separate from Him, isolated, a separate second reality. Mm -hmm. So God is loving us and everything unconditionally already. So everything in the words of Richard Rohr, he will say, everything belongs. That's an interesting expression. Sounds like a Zen koan. Like everything belongs. Not only to something, but everything belongs. 
because Krishna is the center, everything is connected to the center, and that center emanates unconditional love in every direction. So no, no longer a need to fit in, no even a need to belong. You already belong. Not only you already belong, everything belongs. So we just need to become aware of that. That's what we call in Sanskrit sambanda, gyan, sambanda gyan, the knowledge of how everything belongs, how everything is already connected with the divine. So we don't need to belong. We need to become aware that we already belong since God is loving us inf infinitely. So for me, this, this again is a game-changing orientation to spiritual practice because that will affect how we engage in our sadhana, how we engage in our, in our practice. We are not doing sadhana so Krishna loves us, as I mentioned. We are not doing sadhana to earn Krishna's love. We are doing sadhana because Krishna loves us. And we are doing sadhana so we can love him back. Try to not, hopefully you can notice a very big difference between I'm practicing spiritual life so Krishna loves me and versus I'm practicing spiritual life because Krishna already loves me. And so I can love him back. That's completely different orientation and motivation. That's not only a change of one word. Hmm? So that's very important. And that gives us way more also security in that Krishna already accepted you. Don't be paranoid about Krishna may reject me at any moment and will be angry with me and will throw me into whatever, eternal hell or a body of a, of a monster if I'm step onto the shadow of my guru. I don't know. Sometimes the devotees get a little freak a little bit out. No? Now, if God already accepted you now, when we are clearly unworthy, at least me, then why will God change his policy later, basically? Hmm? Hmm. So with, with this certainty, we'll be able to practice from a very different place of reciprocation. Hmm? Practicing from a place that Krishna already accepted me. Krishna is already loving me. So now I just want to give back the embrace. That's that's what my life and practice is about. Not so much I'll try to get Krishna loving me. That's already happening. You don't need to bother about that. <laughs> that's his job and he's doing his job. Now your job is how I reciprocate in kind. How I become aware of that love, honor that love. I'm deeply grateful for that love and show love back to him to reciprocate in kind and of course as I always like to say <clears throat> in one sense it's beautiful to say oh no, we are being unconditionally loved by Krishna but there's always a but <laughs> uh, yes but he also is loving unconditionally everything and everyone else so you should treat everyone else knowing that they are being loved by Krishna unconditionally. That's more challenging. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's, it's not possible that only I am unconditionally loved and everyone else knows. So I don't, so I can't treat them as I really would like to treat them. No, no, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. So the price to pay is I'm loved unconditionally by God, but he's loving everything else unconditionally. And I should, sh I will show how much I appreciate that love in the way how I relate to everyone else who is receiving that same love. Mm 
that's more difficult. <laughs> and in, in other words, I will, it's a way of saying, I will love, I will show my love for God. That's a way of extending the idea. I will show how much I love Krishna by showing how much I relate to everything else and everyone else who are loved by Krishna. Because again, if I love Krishna, I will love the things he loves. And he happens to love everyone. <laughs> That's a challenge. <laughs> I love you, Krishna. And, and the wind will say back, okay, if you love me, you will love whatever I love, right? Yes. Okay, I happen to love everything and everyone. Mm -hmm. So I hope you love all of that as well. And it's like, oh my gosh, but I have my list of enemies that I hate and I will like them to burn in hell for eternity. How can I love them? And things like that. So we have to enter into a process of acknowledging, technically speaking, there are no enemies outside. No? That's a myth. We are created. The only enemy is our uncontrolled mind. As Krishna says in sixth chapter of the Gita, sixth verse, and do that matmanastasyajinatmi The mind who is under which is under control is your best friend. The mind out of control is your worst enemy. So the only enemy is uncontrolled mind, which takes you to see so many enemies outside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you control your mind and your mind is your best friend, you only see friends. The best friend is he who shows you everyone is a friend, basically. <laughs> oh, like when Jesus said, love your enemy. It's like, it sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, love your enemy. How can I love my enemy? It's not possible. In, in order to love my enemy, he has to stop being my enemy. <laughs> and that was the idea, of course. No? <laughs> there are no enemies. Everyone can be, it's lovable. Everyone is loved already by God. No. So the way we relate to God should be reflected in the way we relate to everyone else. That's what the scriptures say also when they describe the three levels of devotees, Kanishta, Madhyam, Uttam. The neophyte practitioner only sees God in the altar and loves God in the altar. And as I say sometimes, probably only in their altar, not even in others' altar. Oh, yeah, Krishna may be in other altar, but mostly in my altar. When you grow a little bit, okay, Krishna's in every altar, <laughs> but only in the altar. They don't know how to see Krishna anywhere else, in other people. A more advanced practitioner sees Krishna in other entities and loves Krishna in other entities, other people, and so on. And the most advanced devotee, Uttam Bhagavat, Krishna says in the Gita, he who sees me in everything and sees everything in me. I'm never lost to him. He's never lost to me. So the topmost devotee sees Krishna everywhere and therefore loves everything everywhere because there is not a place Krishna is not. As I always quote Prahlad Maharaj, the, the small saintly child when he was with his not so saintly father and not so small father, Hiranyakashipu. <laughs> And he will wanted to kill his son. And he will say, okay, you say that your God will protect you. So do you see your God now protecting you? Where is your God? Can you see him? And Prahlad will look. And he will see Krishna everywhere. <laughs> he will reply back to his father, where is Krishna not? <laughs> where is Krishna? And Prahlad will reply, where is he not? 
there's not a place he's not. He's everywhere. <laughs> and therefore, he confirmed that when he appeared from a pillar. Oh, mercy, Madev, Kijai. <laughs> so, so this is, again, this is the challenge of being loved unconditionally. One of them. One of them. Not only the only one. I want to to balance my presentation so it doesn't sound so romantic. Oh, we are loved unconditionally. So nice. Yes, so nice. But you have to recognize that in every other single person. And that will show how much you are loving Krishna. How That has to be, your love for God has to be reflected in your love for everything and everyone else which is loved by God. The other day I read, I mean the other day, a few months ago, Bhakti Rasapal shared a quote by Dorothy Day. She's a very interesting contemporary, I mean she passed away, but nonetheless contemporary Christian mystic. And she will say, fasten your seatbelts. Yeah, ready? Okay. <laughs> you will understand why I say that. <laughs> Don't say that I didn't give you the warning. No. She will say, and I will repeat the quote a second time because you will be in shock after the first one. So she's saying, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I will repeat. I only, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Follow my point? So my love for him is reflected especially in those directions when I have no love for anyone. I cannot say, oh, Krishna, I love you so much. But that one, I hate him deeply. <laughs> he says, you are saying that to me, Krishna will say. I'm also part of that equation. <laughs> you are not seeing my unconditional love in that direction. Hmm? So that's a challenge, of course. No. So when Mahaprabhu, in his famous Sikshastaka, in mean, the third verse, he will say, Manadena, so he is describing there the ideal attitude to chant the name of Krishna, to practice spiritual life, to live life. <laughs> he will say manadena, which means offer respect to all, or offer respect to everyone, or offer respect even to everything. Or Everything, God's present everywhere. He's unconditionally loving everything. You should respect everything. Again, that's not so easy. <laughs> the poetry sounds nice. Oh, yeah, Lord, and more humble than the, than the grass, and more tolerant than the tree. And we are in nature, and we see the tree. Thank you, Gurudev. My tree is Gurudev. You're instructing me. And not, no, no, I don't want respect, but... but when you try to apply that in practice, that's bitter for the ego. That's like death. <laughs> it's, the, it's the type of death we need to embrace in order to, to embrace a higher life. But actually, again, having in mind this idea, God is loving me unconditionally, that helps so much, for example, to follow this verse. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because, for example, Krishna is saying, Mahaprabhu Krishna is saying, <clears throat> Try to be more humble than a blade of grass. We could say, well, if he's asking that, it's because he's already doing that himself. Krishna is the most humble person. 
he's loving us unconditionally despite our denying him. That's humble. Imagine if I say, you don't exist. I don't believe in you or even you are whatever. And that person is still loves you. Wow, there, that's humility. <laughs> that's deep humility. So he's showing that humility by loving us unconditionally. So he's not asking us be very humble before him being that first. That's integrity of God. Whatever he expects from us, he's already doing that. Then he says whatever, no? <clears throat> You think it's like, you know, what's been sort of talked about, like the descent of the human morale and the reappearance of Krishna, say in this time in Kali Yuga, there's something around that we are unable to love our neighbors and say between, I'm just thinking about Palestine and Israel mm, at the time, mm. they're like, we've lost the connection to God and hence we've lost the connection to our mm -hmm. fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. There's a connection there, isn't there? Yeah, so that yeah. Non-existence of love, non-existence mm -hmm. of respect. Yeah, it's so important. Yes, you would say when we forget our common bond, because sometimes our common bonds are so superficial or just like we're born in the same country. So I love you because you were born on this side of the line. But if you are on the this side of the line, at any moment I may be trying to kill you. <laughs> but on this side of the line, brother, I love you. All, unless or until... <laughs> If you like like soccer, like in Argentina, in my country, people, okay, they are going to see Argentina playing in the World Cup, and all of them are like, we are brothers. We have this common bond, Argentina. But then their local teams are playing in Argentina, two different teams, and they may be killing each other. Do you follow my point? Mm -hmm. Which is nonsense, but that's how... But that also hints as... Okay, if we are in a different team, we hate each other. But when Argentina is playing, oh, we are, we we we, are, we attain a bigger a bigger way of connecting beyond teams, because then before you have and so many things. No, so the point is, which is the most wider and comprehensive way that we can relate to each other? In in a way that there is no possibility of seeing us as part of two different teams or bands. And that's, we had a share with God, basically. No? Because if not, still you are fighting with people from other country or people from other planets. Okay, let's unite all of us earthlings against the people from Saturn. No? And, and you attain all this layer, intergalactical war. I mean, we have great potential for all that stuff. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my point is we have to reach that level where there's no longer possibility of seeing each other as separate. And, and that will come when we reach this idea of we all share the common bond with the divine as the center. And, and that, that divine in the center, again, is irradiating unconditional love to all of us. So we should be able to reflect that as each other. As I said the other day in the Veda, it is said, Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam. It's a famous line, which means <clears throat> we are one family. There's only one family in this sense. We're all children of God, if you want me to use a more Christian language. But there's no a second family. So we, should, we shouldn't we should allow ourselves to enter that space. Because if you enter that space, 
there's a second family, a third family, and we just like hate people from other planet, from other country, from my own country, from a different team, from my neighbor, my family, myself. Nobody's spared. <laughs> God Himself, whatever. No, we have great capacity to create this type of alienation. And, and I will say that the present world crisis in big part is a crisis of being alienated of our own self, of our own constitution, of our own identity. And of course, wars and all these things are, <clears throat> in one sense, they are not a problem, but they are more symptoms of the real problem. No? All these wars and violence and drug and addictions and so many things you can give. None of those are problems. All of those are the symptoms <laughs> of the actual problem no? of our, again, uh, yeah, lack of awareness, basically, of who we are in connection to God. And when we water that root, that's the, the, the substantial formula for peace, if you will. Have you, have you got any thoughts or comments on the, the extreme of um, if you're whatever doing well and practicing total love and you have something more of the extreme of that person maybe dealing with a person for this example and they uh, it's a massive challenge for them so they don't they don't approach the situation like that so you say you maybe have extreme uh whatever attacking or violence towards you mm -hmm. what is how how is that position held because in, in yourself obviously how, how to mentally keep you can be i still love you mm -hmm. but you also might be yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have to be practical. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, someone I still is feel a... like there's not a line that gets crossed that you're like, I love you totally, but oh, if you're actually going to cut my leg off, then I then it's okay for me to kill you. Mm -hmm. I don't, that doesn't really work either, does it? Well, I would say that we love each other unconditionally. Ideally, we should. <laughs> Again, that's an ideal. Who is in that idea? That's a very different thing. But I will say, even in, ca in the cases of very saintly personalities, I give it ex extreme examples like Jada Bharat that are describing our tradition in the Srimad Bhagavat. And at one point, he was about to be killed by a group of cannibal, 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 cannibal people, if you will. I mean, maybe they were not cannibal, but they were doing human offerings, sacrifices, and so on. And he was completely cool. No. Maharaj <laughs> will just say, like, he will he will paraphrase this state of consciousness of Jada Bharat, say, I'm just surrounded by friends. There's no danger here. Because he was seeing reality from a very different perspective. No. So he had the, the realization, no. Also, he had the realization, I'm an Atma, I'm a soul, nobody can kill me and cut me. So actually, nobody's doing me anything, like Krishna is saying in the Gita, technically speaking, nobody's killing anyone and so on. But again, that corresponds with a certain level of vision, which if you don't have it and you try to imitate that without being there, that can be dysfunctional. No? If you don't have that vision, are you now, I don't know, someone starts to cut your body to pieces, <laughs> Probably you won't be thinking like I'm surrounded by friends and everything's cool. <laughs> you will be in anxiety, and that's not the ideal way of living your body. <laughs> so, so that's the point. No? According to also our 
state of consciousness, there will be different reactions. But one way or another, we should continue embracing this same principle in different ways according to our adhikar or legibility. So I don't know, if you are a parent and someone is trying to kidnap your children, probably you will try to do something, not just like, okay, I, I love unconditionally this kidnapper. Uh, yeah, you can still do that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my point. That's my point. That's my point. So it doesn't mean that you will allow him to kidnap your child and all the situations that will come from that. You will do the necessary to uh, stop that. But ideally, the point is, yeah, you won't hate that person filled with resentfulness and bitterness, but you, you try to keep this idea in mind. Okay, be, be beyond the conditioning of that particular person, there is a soul which is you ultimately not tied ontologically with that conditioning and god is loving that soul free from all conditioning <laughs> i should keep that in mind and somehow have compassion for the particular situation in which that person is that takes him or her to do the things that they are doing mm -hmm. but yeah in, in practical terms sometimes um, you have to take action uh, <laughs> in connection to what i mentioned at least that's the, the general advice to most of us Again, we are not most of us uh, Jada Bharat, so to say. No, so yeah. Thanks for the question, which of course helps to to keep all these ideas also practical and down to earth in different ways. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And you were earlier describing the four stages of love or attachment. You said, "I only love Krishna, my altar, and everyone's altar." Mm. And the fourth stage, you, you said talked about a term called something like Uta. I mentioned three. Three, actually. Three yeah. stages. Yeah. One who sees Krishna on the altar, it's called Kanishta in Sanskrit. No? The Madhyam is the intermediate practitioner who sees God in different, beyond the altar, in different persons. And the Uttam, Uttam. yeah, who is the highest type of personality, who's is Krishna and God. Actually, Uttam means, technically speaking, Uttama. Tama means ignorance. And Ut means like completely beyond. So Uttam means like way beyond ignorance, which is a way of saying totally enlightened. But sometimes it's described as such. Yeah, yeah. So basically, give me a few more minutes, please. We are, again going back to our main topic, is we are chosen, we are loved by God in our uniqueness. His soul is unique. Everyone else is as well. Again, not only us. Not to be proud of that, to be humble about that. Uh, but again, the problem is that many times we don't believe that. We still, we'll hear all the things. We read Shastra, as I shared. Okay, Krishna loves everyone unconditionally, but still there is something in us that cannot accept that for one reason. We have being convinced for many time for a long time that that's not the case. It's not possible. I am not lovable at all, and probably nobody else is. And we have this apocalyptic vision somehow. Mm -hmm. But but the point is that's God God's capacity. When God chooses, He can love. He can choose everyone without excluding. No. <laughs> so one says everyone is chosen by God. Not only some were chosen, the other one were like mm, not chosen. When, because in this world, when we think, oh, you have been chosen, in this world, if you are chosen, means some others were not chosen. No? Like the boss chose you and you and you, of you. Sorry. 
But when God chooses, nobody's excluded. That's his capacity for choice, so to say. <laughs> So in that sense, sometimes we use in our tradition the word costless mercy. It's another way of saying unconditional love. And I like always to say it's costless mercy. In other words, it doesn't have a cost that I did this and this and this, and that's why you are loving me. It's costless. But it's not priceless. No, there's a price to pay. As I mentioned, one of the price to pay is I'm loved unconditionally, but everyone else is as well. So I should relate to everything accordingly. And then, hey, another price price to pay is, okay, to acknowledge that I'm being loved infinitely, unconditionally by God, and I did nothing to deserve it. In one sense, that's kind of humiliating to the ego. Try to imagine. Someone is loving you fully, perfectly, infinitely, and you did nothing. You can never match. You can never deserve that. And the ego always wants to deserve. So, of course, the idea with this is life is not about trying to deserve things. <laughs> that, that's the psyche of the of the ego, so to say. I, I want something that I can say that I have earned. No, This is my house. I worked hard to get the money. I have the cows and buy this car. And this, I did that. Uh, merit, uh, personal merit. No, but if, if it's a totally free gift, it says nothing to me, to the ego. No? It's totally given, free. You did nothing. I, I don't like that. <laughs> Where is my merit in that? Uh, nothing. The merit is on the side of the giver of the gift. I don't like that. I want my part of the my chunk of merit. So I want something that I can say I have earned. If it's a totally free gift, it says nothing to me. It's only speaking about the giver. And I don't like that. Oh, ego becomes nervous. <laughs> yeah, can I? No, we, we can also share, but can I close the idea with two points? Thank you. So do you follow my point? So for the ego, it's a bitter pill to swallow. It requires extreme humility. Because I'm coexisting with this unconditional love that is coming to me, and I have never deserved it, and no matter what I do, I will never deserve it. So you really require lots of humility to coexist with something that you will never deserve, which is happens to be the thing that you need the most, <laughs> and you deserve the less. That's still coming. It's absolutely humbling. Mm -hmm. So in one sense that we are infinitely loved by God is the most beautiful thing, but the most probably difficult thing to accept in our current situation. God is loving you unconditionally without your effort. You did nothing, and it's already there. You follow my point? So that's it's beautiful, but can be challenging, can be difficult. As the other idea of, okay, God loves you unconditionally, extend that to others. So we can see there is some price to pay to really embrace this beautiful equation of unconditional love. And as they say, and I like this quote, <clears throat> which is <clears throat> divine love <clears throat> is not determined by the worthiness of the object, but by the goodness of the subject. Hmm? Beautiful? 
divine love is not determined by the worthiness of the object as yeah by the merit of the recipient but by the goodness of the giver of the gift and that's it that's an, that's how love operates no i like to call it irreversible grace no <laughs> it's given and it's not taken back it's fully given constantly completely given and we are loved and ultimately saved despite of ourselves <laughs> basically now it was never the point with that i want to make is all this is was never a, a how to say a worthiness contest no <laughs> life is not a worthiness contest spirituality is not a worthiness contest as i put in my book a meritocracy no it's all about merit personal effort deserving being worth, worthy in terms of deserving it's not from that place we cannot deserve unconditional love Unconditional love is too much to be deserved. <laughs> Put it like that. <laughs> Costless mercy is too much to be deserved. As Bhakti Rasa made once in Lines Play of Words, if you want to deserve something, it's like if you are deserving something. We want to serve. But we, you want to deserve, it's like you are taking the service attitude from that. You are deserving. It's like a disservice. No? Deserve. I can play of words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, 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 so I think it's these are important things for us to to reflect no? because depending on, on on which stance we have in this connection, our whole life may be oriented in one way or another. Mm -hmm. If we think that just Krishna again loves an elite, loves the perfect ones, loves the pious ones. We are projecting a very distorted notion of the absolute. You know, Krishna in the scriptures is called as Patita Pavana, which means the redeemer of the fallen. He's not called, I don't know, Dharmic Pavana, mm -hmm. no, the redeemer of the pious, no, of the perfect, of the Paka, <laughs> Paka Pavana. <laughs> That's not Krishna's name. No. So so <laughs> as, as as they remember, I put in my book, no, again it. Sadhana for us in our Bhakti school to engage in sadhana, to engage in practice. Sadhana is not again a worthiness contest, it's not a meritocracy of any type. Like I'm making effort to deserve something, and so Krishna loves me, or whatever. Sadhana is my attempt to reciprocate with God's unconditional love, with the sweet absolute, as I put in my word in my book, like who is addicted to mercy. No, we worship a God who is addicted to giving mercy. No, but speak when we speak about Mahaprabhu. Nityananda Prabhu, they are like, like, junkies. yeah, <laughs> mercy junkies. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no. I, I know it sounds strange if I say, My God is a mercy junkie. No. That's a good one liner, right? <laughs> no. My God is a mercy junkie. He's addicted to mercy. He cannot but give that profusely. He's obsessed with showering unconditional love in every possible direction. The more unqualified you are, the more unconditional love is necessary in that direction. <laughs> and, and in other traditions, there are similar ideas. Now, I remember I, I learned from Richard Rohr one line from the Bible. Very interesting. Very interesting. In Paul, which says something like this. It's very interesting. It says, the law was given... To multiply the opportunities for failing. So where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. 
<laughs> that was interesting. I, I really like that way. No? No? The scripture has all these laws and things to do, so you fail miserably. <laughs> so the more you fail, the more chances there are to for God to show unconditional, costless mercy. It's like a nice way to to conceive this idea and not just feel like, oh my God, this is all about these rules and laws and I have to follow all these and what if I fail? The idea is that you fail. <laughs> so to say, <laughs> fo fo following this logic, of course. No, I'm not, promo I'm not promoting just break all your rules. I'm not saying that, no? Sorry again? Learning to forgive yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another thing. We need to normalize failure in our lives many times in, in, and instead of stigmatizing failure. Because many times we become tied to all that we are talking now. We don't allow, we, we chastise ourselves so much. We can say, I'm worthless and this and that, I'm not loved. So when we fail, oh, that's, that's a, 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 how to say a feast of stigmatization, so to say. No, that's a bring the whip. So, <laughs> you fail, we fail in that, and this is stigmatized failure like brutally sometimes. No, we get depressed and discouraged, and we get dysfunctional instead of hey, let's normalize failure. We will fail. It's not that we want to fail. Not that let's make an arrangement so we fail more and more. <laughs> so Krishna is more merciful yeah. with us. That's not the idea. But the idea is let's be honest and know that we will fail. Even when we don't try to do so. But let's rest on the notion that we already loved despite our failures. And that should give us a humbling, moving impetus to, wait, to stand up in our failures and, and continue trying. So as a result of this type of orientation, as a result of this unconditional love, we go the Abhishnav will say the goal of life for us is not love from God. Our goal of life is love of God or for God. It's one word difference, one letter even difference. F-O-R-F-R-O-M. So our goal of life is love, not love from God. That's not a goal to attain because that's already there. <laughs> so the goal of life is love for God. No? We reciprocate to that. Because love from God is a given from day one, from day zero, <laughs> so to say. Anadi, <laughs> time without beginning. So the remain the remaining part of the equation is love for God. When we say Krishna Prem, love for Krishna. We are not saying Krishna loved me. That's already in the equation. Now it's our part of the equation. Our reciprocation to the original blessing, if you want to put it in one way, that we already received. Hmm? And, and a brief point. Give me two minutes to close two points and then we go if you have any questions. Sorry. An interesting point that I would like to clarify here, which is also in this case in connection to my first book, <laughs> because we, we may say, okay, but if God loves us, from time without beginning doesn't mean that we already then have love for him because he loves us we have that love in us so we have love love is inherent bhakti is inherent and you are contradicting your whole first book Maharaj <laughs> <laughs> so to say but no the love God's, uh, God loves us doesn't mean that we love him I mean I think that's 
just clear. I mean, most people do not have love for God, Krishna which doesn't cancel that he is loving them. So because love is voluntary, remember, the nature of love is voluntary. It's not that I'm forced to love. So until and unless we voluntarily choose, consciously, voluntarily choose to love Krishna, to reciprocate to his love, we cannot say we are loving him. And you cannot say, I have love for Krishna, but I'm not loving Krishna. That doesn't work like that. It's not like I'm full of love for Krishna, but I choose not to express that love. It doesn't work like that. He loves us, but we will say many souls do not have love for him. And that's why they're showing they're not very loving, so to say. <clears throat> so, but a good beginning, I will say one of the first steps for us to love God is to realize how much he loves us. I would say that's one of the very first steps that we need to take. So for me, this is a beautiful just meditation. Oh, Krishna, the scripture says so many times, always oh, think of me. That's, for example, the most important, the, the, the most, the conclusion of the Bhagavad Gita. Now, this verse comes twice in the Gita, at the end, ninth chapter, and the end of 18th chapter, another verse, top five, yeah. Patrak. Man manav havamad bhakto, and so on and so forth. Appears twice in the Gita, all, almost in the same way. But the, and the most important person, Manmana, Krishna is saying, always think of me. And he says that a lot of times in many parts, not only those two verses. But I will say that also that doesn't mean that always we think, because we read that and we may interpret, okay, always think of Krishna means I'm always having in my mind, okay, Krishna, no? peacock feather, flute, blue, bluish but okay i'm thinking of krishna 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 that doesn't necessarily mean that no, that doesn't have to be taken so literally visualize his paraphernalia so to say you know but also means meditate on all that krishna is now, so many things now, and for example this unique feature he's gazing at me unconditionally lovingly that means also that's part of the instruction always think of me that krishna is giving He's constant present in, me, in, in my life. I mean, Krishna is always present. Technically speaking, Krishna is everywhere. Krishna is not over there. Sometimes with our hands, we, we point like this, but actually it makes no sense. <laughs> Ultimately, Krishna is everywhere. So he's totally present in our life. He's looking upon us with unconditional love. So that's a way of thinking always about Krishna, reflecting on these unique features and qualities. So anyhow, I want to share today a few thoughts in this connection, since in my book I spend a few sections speaking about how we are developed of God. And again, for me, that's that we are infinitely loved by God is one of the most beautiful things we can uh, contemplate as a reflection, as a prayer, as a meditation. But as I mentioned, also, it can be one of the most difficult things to accept in our current situation. So it's good that we work on what makes this difficult for us now. This idea of, okay, I have to extend that same vision to others. I have to be humble enough to coexist with something that I will never deserve. Uh, as I said before, no, love is the, the thing we need the most. And many times love is the thing we fear the most because it creates so much, I don't know, change and transformation so 
So again, in, in relation to unconditional love, it's something you that you can never earn it. And that's the difficult part for the ego. I will never earn it. I will never deserve it. <laughs> but you will never lose it because it's always there. So that's the the nice, the poet, the romantic part, so to say, the beautiful part. The other part is beautiful as well, <laughs> but still we are we don't have it. We have not become full connoisseurs of what's real beauty. So sometimes things that are beautiful, we, we taste them like deeply bitter. Mm -hmm. So, so I again, I, I mentioned I chose to to speak about this today because I personally feel it's my personal conviction. But to really go deep into this avenue, this particular point, um, can really trigger the proper attitude and the proper motivation to approach God. Mm -hmm. Not like anukul. The scriptures say you have to approach Krishna with anukul in in a favorable mood. Mm -hmm. So. The idea is not to serve God out of fear, out of separate interest, out of duty even. Okay, I serve you because you are God. But that is to serve him out of attraction, be moved, be melted by his qualities, by his beauty many times, so to say. And one aspect of Krishna's beauty is his unconditional love. So we feel drawn to, to worship God, to love God, to reciprocate with Him because we have been so much moved and captured by realizing, wow, how much He's already loving us, how much He's giving Himself to us fully. So anyhow, that's why I felt important, not only today, but many times I've talked about this and many times probably I will continue talking about this because especially with ideas like this that have not been emphasized enough in our tradition. Sometimes we need like to, the logic of pounding the post. So you will hear me talking about this a few more times with or without your permission. <laughs> so anyhow, a few thoughts I want to share. And you have a question like half an hour ago, sorry. When you asked, you have some question you want to share or some comment or whomever has a question you're welcome yeah no. it's yeah. a moment now yeah <laughs> um, you were mentioning like god and you use some word around choice and that his choice is for everyone and then it, and it got me thinking about say an experience where you feel visited by god and mm -hmm. that you're like oh oh wow he, he maybe chose to show himself mm -hmm. to <clears throat> i was wondering if he doesn't actually choose to show himself to you. It's just that you share the capacity to receive. Mm -hmm. And so it's there and available for anyone to, mm. to see God or something or have this experience. Mm. Because, or, or is there still moments of choice that God's making a choice to appear to you, to mm. guide you? Mm. Yeah, actually we'll say that God is always available. No? So in one sense, it's not that that he chooses to appear and he chooses to disappear. In other words, even when it seems that he's choosing to disappear, <laughs> his disappearance increases his, his presence. No? For example, in our tradition, we have this, the dynamic of the lila is union in separate, union separation, union separation. Many times Krishna is, with the gopis, for example, they're dancing, they're celebrating existence, Rasa Lila, and suddenly Krishna disappeared. 
Now you can say, oh, but, but why? You know, he chose to disappear. Of course, there are reasons and explanations to that. It's too long to go there now. But one could say, okay, he chose to disappear. But that doesn't mean that he chose to disappear and that that disappearance is <clears throat> bringing him farther from us. Actually, when he disappears, he does it with an idea in mind, which is bring increase the quality of the love. That's what Krishna is telling to the gopis. When Krishna returns after his disappearance from the circular dance, we call the Rasa Lila, the gopis are asking Krishna, why you disappeared? No, it's a long conversation and many things happen in between. It's beautiful. But the conclusion is that Krishna said, I disappeared because I love you. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> so he explains himself and he says, I love you. And when someone loves someone, you want the best for that person. And what's the best for that person? That their love increases. If you want the some, if you want to wish the best to someone, the best wish to someone is may your love increase, may your love for Krishna increase particularly. So Krishna was thinking, I love you, Gopis, and since I love you so much, I want the best for you, and the best for you is that your love for me increases. And I realized that the best way in this moment for your love to increase is for me to disappear, because in that separation, all your feelings that you were externalizing. To me in the dance and the dance singing and i disappear all your feelings get internalized and start to get condensed inside of your heart and your love reaches a new height so when i return you will see me in a new light in a new way with increased love so that's why i disappear christian said because i love you <laughs> so i'm saying this in the sense of <coughs> Whether we feel that Krishna chose to visit me or to hide from me, if you want to put it like that, even if that's the case, uh, he's getting closer and closer in different ways, basically. He's never getting farther and farther. The point is sometimes we are not expert in, like, in decrypting his language, no? his mood. We, we sometimes are not expert in understanding why God does what he does because... That takes some expertise. <laughs> so sometimes God, and that's why also I mentioned that in my book, quoting some Christian mystics that speak in the context of the dark night of the soul. And they say, well, sometimes in our spiritual journey, we may feel God disappeared. I, I don't find him. I don't feel him like usual. I'm, no, we were accustomed to perceive God in a certain way. Gone. That's gone. But they say, it doesn't mean they disapp he disappeared. It means he got closer. But we are not accustomed to that level of closeness and proximity. We are still attached to how he was before. So now he got closer. No? Like, like God was here, let's say, to put it. No? I, and I related to him from here. And I was accustomed to this. And suddenly God went, came here. And I'm looking here and i say you are gone you're gone and he's like i'm closer than ever <laughs> but i'm too attached to his previous version of himself in my life and that's what i need to let go that idea of god in order to allow a more intimate and close idea of him and then you realize 
wow, he never went anywhere. He got closer and closer. Sometimes Christian mystic will say that. It will say, he's so close to us that we lose sight of him. <laughs> so close that I cannot see him. And it's like, oh, my hand is so close to my eye. I lose sight of my hand. I cannot see it. It's too close. Okay, now I see it. <laughs> so that's another way of putting it. No, God is the closest thing, the closest person, not a thing, to us more than more than ourselves even. But it's so close that we lose sight of that. So at least we should have this like conviction and understanding that it's not that He's choosing to become distant or disappear in a cruel way, indifferent way, but whatever He does is to foster proximity but but that proximity may happen in different ways ways that we may not be expecting and we have to be open to that because the rules of the game are maybe changing and we have to allow ourselves mm -hmm. to be carried by that and not trying to make the rules ourselves and expect god to adjust to that but the other way around so yeah yes okay one question is a personal question. You're know, listening to this discourse on love, which is absolutely beautiful. Like I'm hearing and sensing and feeling this deep understanding of the unconditional love. What is it like for you in a day-to-day -day situation? Can you stay attuned to that? Is that something that you always carry with you? Or are there some human sort of qualities that also come into your life where you go, oh, I'm not worthy or I'm something where you sort of do you can do you stay on that course? Are you able to? No, Have no, no. I'm work in progress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm not here to make a show that I'm perfectly, completely. F of course, it doesn't mean that I'm going to an extreme that I want to become a serial killer or something like that. But, I mean, it's not easy to be totally situated in that state. But but at least what I have found is like, and there are so many, and in one technically speaking, there are, there are unlimited levels of embracing this idea. So even if you are top most advanced person, which I'm not, but even if you are that, still you will always find, I can always embrace this deeper and deeper. So in one sense, we can never say finally, yes, I'm completely well situated in this situation that's it i have nothing else to attain in, in connection to unconditional i i understood it perfectly mm, you raise your eyebrow when someone says that <laughs> because the nature of love is ever evolving and ever expanding so your understanding of that will always grow but 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 at least what i can say personally is that <clears throat> it has helped me personally enormously the fact that just having this idea present in me and, and bringing it more and more present and which was not that much present in years before i will say because again it's somehow or other it's not so much part of our narrative although it's there in the scriptures that i've shown so it's not that we are like importing that from mystical christianity which they emphasize a lot this point it's also in our tradition. <laughs> so sometimes other traditions help us to remind us of our own tradition. <laughs> no? The way they emphasize something that we are not emphasizing somehow 
make us read our own tradition with new eyes and say, oh, we also have that. Oh, but we never emphasize that. And it's necessary. It's good to emphasize that. It's healing to emphasize that. <laughs> it's inspiring. It, it gives, it changes our orientation. Now I understand why they are emphasizing that so much. Yeah, it's important. So that's there is a place also to be humbled by other traditions and understand. It's not that I'm changing my traditions. Just like wow, thank you so much, mystical Christianity, for reminding me about my own heritage, so to say. <laughs> by emphasizing something that we are not emphasizing enough, but it's part of our tradition. So I feel that during the last few years, this type of topic in particular has become way more part, not only of my presentation to others, but of my own inner discourse, no? and trying to, to remind myself on that. No? And, and it's never a, it's never a, a how to say, Something that invites for conformism or mediocrity, like oh, I'm loved by Krishna. So that's that's it. I can rest. I can just be wh whoever I want because he loves me unconditionally. No, it's it's not from that place. No, okay. I I'll abuse the idea of being loved unconditionally. I do whatever I want. No, on the contrary, it's very humbling, very empowering to know I already have that foundational acceptance and love. And I'm very, again, game changer in terms of from which place I am choosing to live my life and practice. So that's my personal testimony. Yeah. <laughs> you have a second question? It's around, you mentioned the beginning of your discourse that this particular theme of unconditional love is not hammered and honed <laughs> in your tradition. Why do you think that's led to this? That's a good question. That may require a, a comprehensive historical research because sometimes those things also come in the way why certain currents and influences across time make some narratives not so popular and others more popular and some race and again, meritocracy and, and position and influence and personal effort. The things happen in, in history. If you study history, even religious history, you will see like different chapters and currents uh, in, in different times. So I cannot, I, I haven't thought about that, to be honest, like very deeply and nor have done any exhaustive research, which I should now. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's important also to understand why why that's not emphasized enough. Although, again, we use, the point is that we use expressions like costless mercy. Maybe you hear those words 100 times per day in an ashram. <laughs> costless mercy, costless mercy, love, bhakti is love. <laughs> but I will say also in general, besides some specific reasons that we may find or we may not find, that it also is a symptom of times that in time certain things get like washed away and neglected and forgotten and de-emphasized and, and, and just the words remain but the actual implication of the words are not clearly so we continue talking about unconditional love but we don't play out the implications of that what that means not blaming anyone, just it's, sometimes it happens. Krishna says that in the Gita, no? Yoga nashta parampattapa. 
no? Like with the passing of time, the knowledge is lost, and I come again and again to reestablish the lost focus. And when he's saying that, that doesn't only mean that he comes literally as an avatar on planet Earth, but also that he comes to the world in the form of parampara, in the form of the disciplic succession and different members of that succession that bring new light to the lost teachings, if you will, like, like bring back the actual meaning of certain things that somehow became forgotten in time for whatever reason. So my point is, those things happen, just to normalize a little bit that those things sometimes happen. If there is any particular reason, I have to do my homework and my research for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for giving an extra project. <laughs> Grateful. <laughs> but yeah, also I will emphasize that point regarding like normalizing how does those things may happen. Like you just remain with the words, but lose sight of the fullest implications and application of those words in, in the daily life, which course it's unfortunate but happens but it's it also should happen that the members of any the committed members of any tradition should be attentive to that and bring back you know, those lost treasures so to say back to our attention to the proper context and and that's the duty of all of us actually you know, that's not only the duty of Maharaj and that guru and that person but everyone who chooses to be part of a lineage also chooses to be a contributing member of that to that lineage of course according to the stage of your development you can contribute in different ways <laughs> so it's not that you came five days in the ashram and i and i'm all okay i will like revitalize the whole sampradaya or whatever <laughs> but nonetheless we need people like that as well so, so yeah that's what, what comes now but thanks for the question yeah you triggered a few extra questions for me as well that's that's what should happen so that's good thank you <laughs> yeah something else <laughs> yeah i think that i don't have a particular question but i have a lot of food for thought because i find that this idea first of all i like you already mentioned I have no, I don't have any comprehension of this. I have no human experience of unconditional love. And I realized how pervasive that is in my psyche, in my mind, and how even it, how it affects everything. And I started to come, whoa, that's quite deep there. Hmm. But to actually hmm. now to contemplate what that means and its repercussions. Hmm. Is, yeah. That's a, I don't know. That one I would choose. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like, it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's enough yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to be honest with you, and I, I, I already thought a few times like probably I may need to write this total separate book on this topic. Although I've talked on this in a few paragraphs in my in this book, Radical Personalism. That's what happens. You write the book, and then you go to that book and say, oh, from that, those three yeah. paragraphs so much can be fleshed out and a whole separate book should be done and a so separate book okay i have book homework for eternity <laughs> but if there are a few topics from radical personalism that came one of those is this one that i felt like hmm, this deserves a separate book 
also to make the case more clear like okay a book on this topic you know like bringing the theme very clearly in one book because it sits in, inside a book with different topics some, somehow it makes sometimes get lost from the proper emphasis it requires but but yeah it's so important and, and the repercussions of of that are so crucial like also i mentioned in the book on radical personalism when you are talking about unconditional love and how we are we should reflect god's unconditional love to us in our relationship to others uh, for me that's very important because if you <clears throat> sometimes we have this word that we were talking today preaching yeah. no? that many times we interpret this word preaching mm-hmm. preaching like converting people basically like proselytizing convincing or or we think i'm saving them uh, whatever the case now how saved i am to begin with but that's another <laughs> well actually the real and i will not use the word preaching the real sharing the real transmitting the real compassionate extension should be i will make i will give that person an experience of unconditional love I, I will make that person feel unconditionally loved because many people do not have a clue about this at all and they don't live their lives having that idea present at all again their 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 template is the opposite sometimes nobody loves me i'm unlovable i'm worthless and you can imagine you know, which life follows from that so imagine if you can give to that person you meet on the street let's say a moment of unconditional love and acceptance you are there for that person without judging completely present receiving the person accepting the person fully with that mode of i'm here for you unconditionally i mean that's real preaching for me and i wouldn't call it preaching that's a transformational moment you are giving that person a breakthrough moment no because you can give a book but if you are not giving unconditional love to the person in how you feel how you treat how you relate to the person it may not create much change the person may take the book and throw it on the trash bin in the next corner it's not about getting the money for the book <laughs> it's about giving the person a glimpse of what does it mean that you are being loved and conditioned that's for me real real compassion real heart-to-heart connection but of course for that we have to be us first on some level at least grounded in this idea krishna is loving me unconditionally that's so humbling so moving so incredible that okay that takes me to share the news to others from that place not like overflowing so it starts to fill me starts to overflow me starts to sprinkle other people (laughs) and other people receive that if that's genuine they will feel wow i mean imagine normal person normal <laughs> they go by their in their life their day nobody cares for any, anyone many times <laughs> full of judgment and exploitation and calculation and fear and doubt and, and suddenly in the midst of all that five minutes of unconditional love it's like what happened there that's a trip in itself <laughs> you follow my point so that's really powerful but for us, for that first, we need to be empowered ourselves. But I feel it's very important to that we become agents of that unconditional love. Be that again. We receive that, and everyone else 
is love, but mostly none of them are aware of those news. So I'm just here to share with you the news that you are being loved unconditionally. And I was talking with the devotee, remember in Mayapur, with Tridai Chaitanya some weeks ago on this topic. And he told me, <clears throat> okay, but what if the person that you are trying to approach, you're okay, you are telling him Krishna loves you unconditionally, but that person has lived such a terrible life in this lifetime. He was raped as a child. He father killed himself, went to war. I mean, all the possible catastrophe you can have that probably in some cases, not in all, make, make some person very cynical and maybe, maybe like, no, God cannot love me unconditionally. I see all that happened to my life. And of course, it's not the moment to talk about karma, things like that. <laughs> so what you will, how, how you will, what you will give to that person that is not accepting God loves me unconditionally so the natural reply is okay so you love him unconditionally you give him or her an experience of that extent you know that loves him unconditionally he doesn't believe that so you show that yourself to that person and that person cannot deny that because it's coming directly from you that's the best you can do hmm? it's not so much trying to convince god loves you unconditionally god loves you unconditionally yeah, it's easier to say that yeah. But you have to embody that and to extend that to us. That will take the person to believe you, whatever you may like to tell him about God after that. Mm. <laughs> and it all begins in how much we yeah, incarnate, we embody in flesh, so to say, mm. our own words. So, But I think it's, it's important. And that's why also we are talking about this today. It's, it's not just an idea like, oh, how nice to, mm -hmm. like a concept. No, it's not just a theoretical concept. It, it, it has all these very down-to-earth, grounded, practical implications in how we relate to everything and to everyone and to ourselves and, and lots of healing in that sense. Lots of like healing past trauma with distortions about who God is and how to relate to everything and everyone and ourselves. Lots of fear that can get deconstructed and anxiety and guilt and shame and hate, it, it, it can counteract that so much. Someone is calling you. Okay. It's really nice because this topic is so dear to me. Like back in 2006, I was in Guatemala at a long meditation retreat and I had this deep realization about love and that that's all there is in life. Like I was given this experience. And so I've been holding this, but I feel like no one talks about it. Mm. It always gets packaged up into. <clears throat> especially if it comes through like a parampara, through an ashram, you know, around duty and around service and around lots of things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm really thoroughly drunk from your cup of prim, you know, mm. <laughs> to be reminded of. Mm. This is paramount and central. And mm. It's actually nothing else. That's it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a driving force. The problem is we lose sight of that reality, so we need to, yeah. I appreciate too because I've heard this coming from Christians many times, mm -hmm. and even if you're <clears throat> somebody on the street and they're doing their street thing, 
And now I was like, God loves you. <laughs> just because but, you didn't know, and you're like, but it's what's so the you... context now? I'm just walking yeah. past. I don't know, you know, don't, but to actually go through it so deeply like that. Now, next time someone says that to me, I'll. I'll be like, thanks for the reminder. You were right. Sorry, I, I, I didn't. I didn't get that the last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That will. That should be the extension. God loves you, and therefore I love you, and He loves me, and we we should love each other. And it's not just God loves you, but I have nothing to do with you or anything. It's like creates a natural commitment and bond among all of us. But yeah, I agree that there's a way to maybe say tell that to others and maybe just like god loves you and it's like okay <laughs> so yeah and, and again the best way to begin maybe just like to embody that with our own example even without telling the word he loves you or i love you or i just like if you are present internally from that place of unconditional acceptance that speaks more than thousand words and the person will feel it on mm -hmm. one level or another no? and that will be the beginning of all the other conversations so mm -hmm. to say right mm -hmm. because if you just go with the with the dogma we're just no, no thank you <laughs> we have tried that quite a few times <laughs> <laughs> yeah we have to learn from history so it doesn't repeat itself mm -hmm. Patrak, any conclusion, any reflection? Are you okay? You agree with us? Okay. No, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. <clears throat> okay. So anyhow, we'll... The question is if everybody recognizes it, no? Mm -hmm. If you extend it. Again, again? If they recognize it. Recognize what? If you extend this unconditional love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If they still have the capacity to recognize it, well, that's that's another layer because when I'm not saying <coughs> try it again and again and again, again mm -hmm, actually, mm -hmm. but it's just, I think some people might have lost all hope that it exists. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, so that gives us a good chance to sh share that to others in a way that makes them think otherwise which is not easy sometimes sometimes you realize oh for me to give this person an experience of unconditional this person is so has reached such a place of cynicism or hopelessness that i cannot just tell him god loves you oh my life changed <laughs> i really need to embody we may realize oh i'm not in that place yet so well okay i will yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even and even if they reject that that I'm, my attempt to offer that love as much as i can offer that's also part of the unconditionality of my offering because if i try to show that with my limitations and you totally reject it okay then i'm being put to test how how unconditional it was yeah. no because if i after that i start to insult you and hate you oh this is a lost Let's burn in hell in whatever possible way, and the rest is not in my hands exactly. But I guess you also have to be careful with yourself 
Mm -hmm. And who to give that present to? Mm -hmm. Because if you just give it away without any discrimination, you might run into pretty quickly. Well, depending from which place you are giving it, again, mm -hmm. no. If you if you give unconditional love from a genuine place, not from a again attached place to results, but genuine, even if the person is not accepting it, uh, you haven't lost anything. It's not that you run empty because he didn't accept of reciprocated but of course i agree that each of us are in different places and not all of us have the same capacity and we have to exercise some criterion but ideally <laughs> ideally uh, if you are giving from a correct place what you have so to say what i mean you are aware okay god loves me unconditionally and some level you are aware of that and you are trying to extend that experience of that awareness is there in you you cannot run out of that, so to say, of that experience, of that awareness, if you give on that level to others from a proper place. Probably, ideally, it has to increase. Yeah, right. yeah it has to increase because the more rejection you face, so to say, ideally, the more compassion should come from your heart, the more unconditionality should come. Not necessarily in the form of insisting on that same person, probably, no? but just of the nature of unconditional love has to increase increase that should be the ideal course of action that by its very nature unconditional love becomes more and more unconditional if you will. it grows in its unconditionality so to say no you can you can have full unconditional love but it can always become fuller <laughs> and more full and face and you have the examples of great saintly personalities which are even killed literally and well, i always like to think christ thinking okay praying father forgive them they don't know what they are doing and they are killing him so that's a way of okay not everyone may be able to say that in that moment <laughs> but that's kind of an example of the potential that we have to develop unconditional love to the point that someone is killing you and you're praying for them with full compassion so we have the ideal we have to be realistic where we are and from there from there trying to it seems like the way in which unconditional love like just for the example of jesus christ mm. the way in which he manifests his love for them is through prayer to god mm -hmm. i pray for your highest welfare mm -hmm. which you are not currently in consciousness you're unconscious yeah. of what is your yeah. welfare yeah and that maybe in those cases when we the expression of love to a person who is rejecting of it is through prayer for that person mm -hmm. that way that we are they may not be able to perceive that directly but there's the, the three-way connection mm -hmm. on there yeah yeah the it reminds me also Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur he will say someone is deeply envious envious of you and you may like to love that person unconditionally and express that but the person for unfortunate reasons becomes the more you try the more envious the person becomes so he will say the best way to serve that person is to take a distance from that person but he says you are taking that distance in service to that person it's not just a, a resentful distance so i would like to serve you i would like to serve everyone but my service will take different shapes according to where you are also so if you are envious like a snake so to say <laughs> My service to you will take the form of taking some distance, not indifferent distance, 
but prayerful distance. I will take distance. I will pray for you. I will wish the best for you unconditionally. And probably, yeah, that prayer will have an effect. And maybe that person in time has a change of heart, comes back to you, and, and you won't tell him, oh, now you're coming to me after saying to, no, no, now you, no, no, totally, no, you immediately are there, no? So, yeah, that's a way that will it will take shape. Yeah, prayer is very powerful. We shouldn't underestimate the power of also intercessory prayer, what we may call, no? Okay. Intercessory prayer, that when you pray for someone, so to say, you pray to God for someone, like, that has an effect, no? It shouldn't be taken lightly, like, oh, Nothing happens. Oh, something's happening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're almost two hours, so I think we can close the curtain here. And we have some food for thought and heart to ruminate on. So it's also good to know when to stop and give time to that to that process. Yeah. Because we can continue eating and eating, but also we need to digest. So thank you so much for your time, your presence, the invitation here as well. Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhaktadanda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramanan Haribol, Vanchakalpatarubhishya Kripa Sindhuvye Bacha, Patitanam Pavanifya Vaishnavibhya Namonamaha, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Bindha Ki Jai, Gaur Hari Haribol. <coughs>